Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In this latest episode in our series on the life of the Apostle Paul, Dale South teaches us lessons from Paul's missionary encounters in the city of Athens. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 and join us as we continue learning how to imitate Paul as he imitated Jesus Christ. This morning, guys, we're going to be looking at Paul's interaction with some pagan Gentiles in the Greek city of Athens. And it's one of two passages in the entire Bible that shows us a model of what it is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who are totally biblically illiterate pagans. We have three verses in Acts chapter 14 that we looked at a few weeks back in Lystra when Paul was there and people thought he was Hermes and Zeus and then they wanted to worship him and then it wasn't long before people came back and tried to stone him and they stoned Paul and left him for dead. He didn't even get to finish his message. But we have those three verses of him starting out to have a message with people who were totally uh, biblically unaware pagans. And and now we have 10 verses we're going to look at this morning in the midst of our other verses surrounding those in Acts chapter 17, uh, 22 to 31. And and these 10 verses are not among this agrarian kind of uneducated group that we had in Lystra. Those were uneducated pagan folks. These are of the highest education that you could have, the most influential people that you would find in that area. And we'll, we'll look at these 13 verses more in depth in the little handout there where you're going to have nine elements that I've drawn from these verses about sharing uh, the gospel with biblically illiterate people. But as, as more and more people in our own country and in, in the Western world are uh, unaware of the Bible's teaching, Acts chapter 17 that we're going to look at this morning, I believe, be- becomes a textbook case for the church to study and, and to apply. And so please turn your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 17. We're going to start off with verses 16 through 21 and just kind of set the context a, a little here as to how Paul even gets to Athens. Remember, he went to Macedonia, to Philippi, and all because of a Macedonian call. This was not quite the same kind of experience here. Begin, I, I don't have my ESV today. I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. But Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 21. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Then also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. Some said, what is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? And others replied, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and they said, may we learn more about this new teaching you're speaking of? For what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these ideas mean. 
Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. So that, that's a loose description of the Athenians there and, and how Paul got there. Um, we, we want to recall the context that after preaching in Thessalonica, you'll recall that, that, that Paul ended up having to get out of there in a hurry. And then he went to Berea and the, the Bereans were there, but then this, this mob of people that the, the antagonistic Jews against Paul in the gospel followed him to Berea. So they had to get Paul out of Berea. And so Silas and Timothy stayed on in Berea, but they got Paul out of town. Some of the group escorted him all the way to Athens, Greece. Now, when Paul was there, he told these guys, hey, bring back Timothy and Silas. Come get me as soon as you can. But for, for what we know, they left Paul alone in Athens and, and they returned. As we, we've just read here in, in verses 16 to 21, it says, Paul's spirit was stirred up. He was troubled, the Greek says. He was provoked within him. It's a visceral reaction as Paul looks around the city and he sees all the idolatry going on. And as he, he, he sees the pantheon with, with all of these Greek gods and, and during this time of Paul, historically, there was, there was a Roman uh, historian named Gaius Petronius, and he humorous, humorously kind of said, it is easier to find a god in Athens than it is to find a man. There, there were just so many idols and gods all throughout that city. And when Paul got there, his whole spirit was just in turmoil by all of, of these idols. So what, what was Paul so stirred up about with these idols that filled the city? Why would he be so stirred up? And perhaps a, a related question is, why should we be so stirred up about idolatry all around us? I think there's a couple of reasons that we, we have here. And one of those is that idolatry gives worship and credit that belongs to God, and it gives that to false gods. And so God is not receiving the glory that he deserves to receive. He's not receiving the worship. That worship is being siphoned off and given to a lesser thing that is not God at all. So our God is being robbed of his worship that rightfully belongs to him when there's idolatry present in our midst. A second thing that I believe is there as well is that idolatry deceives people with lies and it causes them to put their confidence and their trust in something that can never save them. So Paul was deeply stirred up by all of these idols and all the lies and all the spiritual battle that was going on behind those idols. And I think that when we, when we look today even at the idolatry and we see the worship that's being siphoned off and the confidence and the faith that we put into things other than God and we see the lies that are there, I think it should absolutely stir us up as it did Paul. But although he was disturbed and he was stirred up in trouble, let's note what Paul did not do. Paul did not lash out at the people. I mean, I, I can imagine Paul in his spirit being so troubled that he would look at those, those statues of these idols and say, lies, demonic manifestations. I just want to crash all of these to the ground and make rubble out of them. 
But, but Paul didn't do that, even though that may have been inside of his, his uh, heart at the time. Instead, it says that he, he reasoned with them. Um, if Paul had been in a synagogue or in a Jewish setting, and he saw these idols on display there, you can bet his response would have been harsher. You can bet he would have been right up in their faces saying, what in the world are you guys thinking? Are you doing another golden calf here like Aaron did with Moses? Haven't you ever learned anything? But he was not in the synagogue here. He was in a different context, and it called for a different approach. These were not Jews that were being unfaithful. These were Gentiles that were, were just totally unaware and, and totally idolatrous. Um, there was a synagogue in Athens, and Paul did go to the synagogue, it tells us, and he did reason with the Jews and the God-fearers. And when he was in the synagogue, we can be assured that Paul was using Old Testament verses, just like he had been from Acts chapter 13 of the synagogue in Antioch, and we've seen throughout his, his teaching that we've been able to have some record of that he would go back to the Psalms and he would go back and he would show how these passages from the Old Testament were pointing ahead to the Messiah Jesus and how Jesus fulfilled those passages. But it's a, again, it's a different group of people here he's with now. It's a whole different context. And so what, what we're going to see here is that Paul had been with these uh, people in the synagogue on Saturdays and then he goes into the marketplace every other day and he reasoned with these biblically illiterate Gentiles, and that called for a different approach. Um, the agora is the, the main word here for marketplace that we see. And uh, agora um, has this idea not just of a food market or a market where you buy and sell goods, but in Athens, it was a marketplace of ideas. It's where philosophers went to express their, their convictions and to debate with one another. So Paul had this great crowd of people always gathered there in the marketplace in the agora. And even that word agoraphobia that we have today, right? That's like the fear of going out into the marketplace. It's wanting to stay at home. You don't want to even go to the market when you have agoraphobia. Um, Paul engaged the people, though, and their ideas in that marketplace with the gospel of Jesus. And as he was doing that, that brought him in contact with some philosophers from two of the main schools of philosophy at the time, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, there'll be more information about both of those groups on the, the handout that you may find interesting. But these otherwise intelligent philosophers, some of the most learned of men at the time, and the, the people here in the marketplace, they, they were clueless as to what Paul was preaching. Uh, they were highly educated in the world's ways of thinking, but they were biblically illiterate and clueless about the truth of God's word. So look what some of them said in verse 18 of chapter 17. They, they said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Okay, they had, they had totally misunderstood what Paul was talking about when he talked about the gospel of Jesus and the resurrection. They thought he was talking about two gods. They thought he was talking about Jesus and then Anastasia, which is the Greek word then would be for resurrection. They thought he's got two different guys. He's got Jesus and he's got resurrection. They, they didn't even know that he was talking about Jesus and his physical resurrection. So 
as, as a result of the confusion among these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, the language indicates that they actually forced Paul to go to the Areopagus. Uh, the, the word took him literally means they, they took hold of him. They grasped him. It's the same word that's used of, of, of bringing somebody under arrest. And then it says they brought him to the Areopagus. And, and the idea here is that they carried him there. They led and carried him to the Areopagus. So we see that Paul started off preaching the gospel of Jesus in the marketplace and then very soon he found himself preaching the gospel of Jesus in the Areopagus. Now, what is the Areopagus? The, the Areopagus referred to both a, a place, Areo would be like Ares, sometimes also known as Mars, one of the Greek gods in their pantheon, and Pagus would have been a hill. So it would be the hill of Ares or Mars Hill is what it's probably known as to most uh, people uh, from America today, when you go to, to Athens, you can go to Mars Hill. That would be the area of the Areopagus. And one of the, the duties of the Areopagus, there, there, there was also a council called the Areopagus. And this was like your city council that would meet on that hill. And so one of the duties of the Areopagus council was to decide which gods were to be accepted and which gods were to be rejected into their pantheon of gods. They, they were sort of the gatekeepers. They had to make sure that any new god that came in was going to be worthy and was going to have certain respectable characteristics there that would meet their qualifications or else that god would not be admitted in. So they wanted to hear about Paul and his new gods, Jesus and resurrection, that he was preaching there in the marketplace. Now, Scholar Bruce Winter describes the process of, uh, that a herald of a new God would have to go through in order to gain approval by the Areopagus council there. So they, they were taking Paul toward the Areopagus to try to defend why his gods should be approved. And one of the things that it took was the, as we'll see here, they, they needed to, to have a site. They needed to buy land to have a site for their temple. They needed to construct an altar in order to have sacrifices to the God. They needed to provide a substantial beneficial, uh, beneficiary kind of a, a, a dinner at least once a year to honor the gods. And they possibly needed to provide for support of cultic officials or priests there that were going to be serving that God in that temple. So this is what all the other gods in the pantheon had to do. And they're saying, Paul, we, we brought you here because you're preaching these foreign gods and we want to make sure your gods are qualified to get into our pantheon. And you got to check off the list. One, two, three, four. If you want your gods in there, this is what you have to be able to do. And so <clears throat> when we read Paul's preaching in other contexts, we, we, we see that they were mostly among Jewish hearers. And we saw him quote these, these Bible verses but, but right now, we, we see that he doesn't quote any Bible verses. F.F. Um, F. Bruce has this observation about Paul's um, teaching here. He says, like the biblical revelation itself, his speech begins with God, the creator of all. It continues with God, the sustainer of all, and it includes with God, the judge of all. Uh, the, the, the fact that that Paul is not quoting 
Bible verses with chapter and reference doesn't mean that Paul is not teaching biblical truth here to these pagan uh, philosophers and council members. Paul, Paul is actually taking the biblical message and, and putting it into words that he thinks that they might be able to grasp and to understand without compromising the truth of Scripture. So the, the big idea that I'd like to get across here today is, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ has points of contact and points of conflict with every culture and every belief system. And what we want to see here is that faithful evangelism points to both the contact points and the conflict points. You see, we've got to find points of contact with people who don't know anything about the Bible, with people who are totally biblically illiterate. They may be intellectually smart, like these philosophers were and these council members were, but they just don't have the information about the Bible. They've never read it. They've never studied it. They don't know the truths of the scriptures. But we have to have points of contact with them. But if we only affirm the points of contact between the culture and the gospel and say, hey, you guys are great here. Look at this. All these things you are getting right. But we don't confront the points of conflict with the gospel. We're going to end up baptizing the culture without ever redeeming it. And we'll be affirming things that God says are not affirmable, like idolatry. And we end up with syncretism. That's a term we talked about back earlier when we went to saw Paul and Barnabas go to Cyprus, and he had this Jewish magician who was trying to practice the black arts of magic while also being a Jew. He was trying to blend in two faith systems that don't blend together without doing harm to one or the other. So we don't want to end up with syncretism of blending the gospel with these pagan beliefs that guts the gospel of its transforming power. So let's see how Paul just gives us this wonderful example of contextualization uh, in this declaration before the the Areopagus here. Um, Yeah, I think we're good there. Syncretism, there we go, syncretism. Um, Let's read Acts verses 22 to 34 out of chapter 17 here. This is Paul's speech and just a few more explanatory descriptive verses afterwards. So Paul's been taken to this group now to defend why his gods should be in the pantheon of Greek gods. Then Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I see that you're extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaimed to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. For from one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps that they might reach out and find him though he is not far from each one of us. 
For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And being God's offspring, then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear more from you again about this. And then Paul left their presence. However, some men joined him and believed, including Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Now, the first thing we see here in Paul's speech to the Areopagus was that he affirmed them. He was looking for this point of contact with them that he could build a bridge. So he affirmed them as being very religious, though inside it was kind of tongue-in-cheek. It was tearing them up that they were worshiping all these other idols out there and siphoning off worship that belonged to God the Father alone. But he said, I see that you are, are very religious. So in today's culture, we could probably say, you know, I see that you're a very spiritual person because that's really what Paul was saying here to, to these people, even though their religiosity was misguided and deeply disturbing to him. And see, God has created everybody as a worshiping being and ideally designed to worship him and him alone. But, but if we're not worshiping the one creator God, we're inevitably going to create our own lesser gods and put our confidence in them and we're going to end up worshiping them, whether we call it worship or not. Our devotion, our time, our thoughts, our hearts are wrapped up in something other than him because we haven't given him the worship that he alone deserves. Now, notice when Paul spoke to them, he, he never even called their images in the pantheon gods. What does he call them? Objects of your worship. Okay, he's, he's being very careful here. He didn't even give them the name of God. Uh, and in his introduction, then Paul finds another point of contact with these pagan Greeks by referring to their altar to the unknown God. Paul artfully now proclaims that, that he's not introducing any new gods to the people. There's no new God. He's, he's, he said, I'm just revealing to you the one true God who you don't know yet. Even though you've got an altar to this unknown God, I'm going to tell you about this unknown God. I'm going to let you know who he is and he wants to be revealed to you. So Paul, Paul does this and as he describes the one God that he, Paul, worships, it becomes clear he's not seeking approval from the Areopagus, nor, nor is he seeking to make God, the one creator, true God, just one more object of worship in this pantheon filled with idols. Rather, he, he's seeking that they might know the one true God, the creator who is Lord of heaven and Lord of earth and the sustainer of all life and who sovereignly places people wherever he wants to place them. And he's the ruler of, of everything in this world. And so what this God wants from them 
is not a building or food or other things. He, he wants them to know him and to repent of their sins and to turn away from their idolatrous objects of worship that are offensive to him. Now, Paul says, this God has no need of a physical accommodation that the Areopagus required for idolatrous objects of worship. He said, on the contrary, this God doesn't need you to create anything or for us to build him anything. This God created the world and everything in it. He said, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. Therefore, you don't need to buy any land. You don't need to have a site for this guy. It all belongs to him already. There's no need to build him a temple. He doesn't live in temples built by the hands of men. There's no need to offer some sort of a patron feast to this God every year because this God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything from human beings because he gives everything to human beings that they might have life and breath and everything else that they need. Now, though, though, though Paul did not mention Adam and Eve by name, he was identifying Adam as this common ancestor. He said, through one man, he populated the whole earth. Now, I've included in the additional handout here some, some with the slides today. For those of you who are online, there should be a PDF file as well that will be there for you with this handout. Uh, but it has some points of contact and conflict with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And it also has these nine common elements that we find in those three verses from, from Acts 14 and these 10 verses here. In these 13 verses, we get nine common elements of sharing the gospel with people who know nothing about the Bible. So, but just a couple of points, general points right now will be helpful about the Epicureans and the Stoics. And first, the Epicureans believe that God was transcendent, that he was above all and not really involved in the day-to-day -day living of folks. And he doesn't need anything for, from human beings. So for the Epicureans, their life was all about seeking pleasure. It was kind of an eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, that was kind of, for them, pleasure was the height when persons attained freedom from, from all their passions and all their superstitious fears. Uh, the gods epitomized these virtues because the gods stayed transcendent. They, they were detached. They didn't show any interest in human beings. And, and so that was the Epicurean kind of philosophy. And then the Stoics went to a different place. They just said, no, God is not so transcendent up there. God is everywhere. He's in everything. He's right here among us, all around us. And so although Paul doesn't quote scripture, ironically, he quotes two pagan poets. He quotes two Stoic poets here. If you've got some quotes verses in there, these are not Bible verses when he says that, you know, even your own poets will, will, will say he is not far from us. We are all of his offspring. Um, Paul, Paul affirmed in those quotes with the Epicureans that the true God is transcendent above all. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He's above everything and everybody. But then he also affirmed with the Stoics that the true God is also imminent and he's never far from any one of us. So uh, at one point when Paul's affirming the Epicureans, you can hear, almost see them nodding in approval. Yeah, he, he, he's got me. He understands me. And then when he, he moves over to the Stoics, then he says, yeah, but God is close and he's right here with us. They're, they're nodding, yeah, see, you Epicureans, you got it wrong. Paul is building bridges to both groups by points of contact, but he's getting ready to show points of conflict with their worldview systems as well. 
So after affirming the Epicureans about the transcendent of God and the Stoics about the eminence of God, he continues to show these points of conflict between his hearers' beliefs and the gospel. He pushes home the point that his God has been unknown to all this learned group of hearers. In spite of all of their knowledge, they've remained ignorant of the one true God, the creator, who needs nothing from humans, but graciously gives them everything. And then in verse 30, we get to a point of conflict that's pretty clear here. He says, the times of ignorance that got over, the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And then in verse 31, he goes on to explain that God indicated the man he's appointed to judge this world in righteousness by raising him from the dead. Now, that's, that's Jesus. He didn't mention the name of Jesus at that point in Luke, but, but he's talking about Jesus. And we have every reason to believe that he went on to, to name the name of Jesus when he was talking to people further uh, about this. But Paul is essentially saying to the Areopagus ruling council here, you guys may think that you brought me here to judge whether the God I proclaim to you is worthy of your pantheon. But in reality, it is the God that I proclaim to you that will judge you and your pantheon. The only thing the God Paul preached was seeking from these Athenians was for them to repent and turn from worshiping idols to worshiping the one true God. And again, D.A. Carson, again, this idea of, of no Bible verses being, being used here. Okay, here were the, the, the responses here that I missed getting on the slide. But um, D.A. Carson says that Paul presents a God who is actively involved in this world as its creator, providential ruler, judge, and self-disclosing savior. He was not preaching a foreign God that needed approval of this ruling council to become just another God in their pantheon. Paul was simply making known to them the God who was to them the unknown God that they failed to know, but who had always, always been in their midst. So when, when Paul declared that the man that God had proved had been resurrected from the dead, that's where he lost these uh, Gentile uh, listeners here because he touched on what may have been the biggest point of conflict between the gospel and Greek cultural beliefs, because most Greeks believed that the body was a prison that we needed to be set free from. You either let your body run loose on all your passions, which would be more the Epicureans, or you beat your body down and you tried to beat it into submission by becoming an aesthetic, but more like the, the Stoics would be, who didn't want to give rein to their, their bodies. But, but the idea of being stuck in a body for eternity was totally offensive. It was a point of conflict with all the Jewish philosophical circles. But so that Jesus had been crucified also was another problem because that implied to Greek listeners that Jesus must have done something wrong. Good people don't get crucified on a Roman cross. So this guy must have done something wrong because the Roman government's really pretty just and to have sentenced him to death was such a gruesome crime. He, he must have done something really, really bad. And so, I think I have one more page here. As we, we look here 
Let me find the right one. Here we go. We look, we see this mixed reaction to Paul's proclamation of resurrection. Some people sneered. Some people said, we'll hear more. Some even came to saving faith. And he names them by name here. But I, I just want to close with two kind of applications that I, I feel personally are applications for me. And that is, first, I, I believe one of the reasons the church today is not having a greater impact on the culture for the kingdom of God and for his glory it has to do with the fact that, that we're just not troubled and stirred up and provoked enough by all the idolatry that is all around us. We're not viscerally aggravated by the fact that, that worship and credit and glory that belongs to our God alone who is worthy is being siphoned off. And we live lives of, of recreational escape and diversion rather than of worship to him. And we're okay somehow with that. We're not upset that people are being lied to and deceived by false gods who cannot save them. We get upset by politics. We get upset by the economy. We get upset by certain kinds of immorality. But, but why might these topics be what gets us viscerally upset more than we get upset by idolatry? You know, guys, how, how might things actually be different in America if every American who professes to be a born-again Christian would give as much passion and as much intensity to engaging idolatrous worshipers with the gospel as we do to political and economic and moral issues? And, and, and secondly, we're not, Paul was not only upset by the idolatry that he saw all around him, but he made it a point to go to the marketplace, this agora, every day in this marketplace of ideas to, to reason with, not to try to lambast, but to reason with these idolaters about the truth of the gospel and about their need to turn away from false gods who'll never save them and never satisfy them. Paul could have just sat in his room waiting for Timothy and Silas to come back. He could have just held tight and not put himself in any danger, not put himself in any conflict. And, and, and yet he, he went into that marketplace and reasoned with these people because he was so disturbed, it moved him to action to say, I can't bear to see my God having, having worship siphoned off to these other images and objects of worship, and nor can I stand by quietly while these people Thousands and thousands of people in our world today, millions and millions of people have been deceived by lies. And they're, they're worshiping objects that cannot save them and never will be able to. And I think if the church had that kind of upset and that kind of reaction to the upset, to go to reason with people who are biblically illiterate and really don't have a clue about the gospel, I just believe things would be different. When Paul went to them with the gospel, he didn't attack them. He reasoned with them. He didn't simply quote scripture, but he found points of contact with their beliefs in the gospel. And once he found that, that contact to build the bridge, then he pointed out the conflicts that says, you know, if you really want to be saved, you're going to have to turn away from all this. 
you, know, you got, a, got a couple things right, but there's a lot of things wrong, and you have to renounce those wrong things because God won't share his glory with another. So again, the, the big idea, the gospel of Jesus Christ has points of contact and points of conflict with every culture. And if our gospel is not having conflict with our culture, it's not the gospel because the gospel is a countercultural message. The kingdom of God will never be subsumed to any earthly kingdom. Faithful evangelism points to both the contact and the conflict. Thank you for joining us for the Friday Men's Breakfast podcast. For more information on the Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash mensbreakfast.